Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read the best business books. Read with us so you can become a better investor, manager, or entrepreneur. This is our fourth episode. We read Made in Japan, the story of Sony, as told by its co-founder, Akio Morita, in 1986. It recounts Morita's life growing up in Japan and serving in the Navy during World War II, the early years of Sony, reasons for Sony's continued success, and his views on a variety of business and international issues. Before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. I'm Olson Hart. I'm an entrepreneur with a couple of different businesses. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So, starting with the author, who was Akio Morita? Yeah, so this was actually written by Akio Morita along with um, a couple of other people, the Time Magazine Tokyo Bureau Chief Edwin Rheingold and a Japanese journalist uh, Mitsuko Shimomura. But clearly it's, you know, Akio's perspective on the founding of Sony. Uh, he was born in 1921. He was the first son uh, of a 15th generation sake brewing family. And they also made soy sauce and miso paste. Um, so his father had apparently brought the company basically back from bankruptcy after you know his grandfather and great grandfather had largely seeded the business to outside management and focused on sort of collecting antiquities. So he grew up wealthy. Um, they had a tennis court on the fancy street in Nagoya. He was highly educated and groomed to take over the the brewing business from a very young age. And so would actually go in and take inventory and things like that. He wasn't a strong student for the most part, especially in things he didn't care about, but he did really uh, enjoy math and physics. So he ultimately graduated from Osaka Imperial University with a degree in physics and became part of a naval research unit during World War II. And um, he was, I believe, building night vision goggles and some or maybe not goggles specifically, but researching night vision and other sort of military technology. It was there that he met Masaru Ibuka, who was the founder of Sony. And ultimately, shortly after the end of the war, Rather than joining the family brewing business, Akio joined Sony a few months after the original founding, which was really only nine months after the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So uh, Sony really was formed in the wake of World War II in Japan, and Akio was an integral part of the business. I don't actually know very many details about what his titles were over time. I think he was ultimately the chairman of Sony. I don't know if he was ever CEO or president, but he he was very important to uh, the creation of many of their core products, to their entry into the United States and, and much of the world. And his family actually funded the business early on. So he was much younger than, um, than the founder, but uh, the the family was providing money to Sony. And so he was, you know, essentially an integral part of the company from his joining. Now, interestingly today, I think the younger generation doesn't even necessarily familiarize themselves always with the Sony brand. When we were growing up in the 80s and 90s, Sony was the highest echelon of quality in electronics. Can you tell us a little bit about Sony's brand and what it means to people around the world? Well, to me as a kid growing up, I like identified it with the Walkman and it was pretty serious. But today I, I'm not even too familiar with what they do. Maybe they make TVs. At one point in time, they had a phone. Uh, they have an entertainment division, but it seems like the company is a shadow of its former self. 
I think that's fairly accurate. They did recently, in the last few years, get out of making personal computers, I know. Um, so they've actually been ceding territory. So yeah, I mean, the the history of Sony, at least as told in the book, was about really like micro technology, basically, it seemed like they embraced the transistor early on and made much smaller tape recorders and, um, you know, radios and things along those lines. The Walkman, as Molson talked about later on, um, compact disc players, et cetera. So they did a lot with audio. And those are the sort of core Sony products I remember having as a kid. Yeah, Walkman. I had a Discman. I had um, a Sony TV was the first TV I owned. It was like a, you know. TV with a DVD player and a, a VCR in my college dorm. But um, at this point, I think they're still like a $75 billion company. And honestly, I don't know that much about, you know, where they make their money right now. It might mostly be from like PlayStation and, and enter- entertainment and things like that at this point. But um, yeah, I guess a PlayStation 2 was also a you know big part of my uh, my childhood. Semiconductors. Right. I think they make a lot of components. So uh, it seems like they've kind of receded a little bit from, from well, besides obviously PlayStation and their continued manufacture of TVs, but uh, they're making less products that touch consumers directly. And it seems like components, things like semiconductors account for a larger percentage of what they're selling now. This book was written in 1986. At that time, they were well known for making the best TVs, the best stereos, uh, the Walkman and the Discman was just coming out. So that's kind of the context of the Sony product line when Akio Morita was writing the book. Um, so let's go back, though, to the beginning of Sony. So Akio Morita talks about the early days of Sony more extensively than he talks about the, his last couple decades at the company. What were they building back in the 1940s and 1950s? Yeah, so their first product... Um, well, basically, they just were kind of playing around in a factory and trying to figure out what they could make money off of. They th- considered uh, a rice cooker, but apparently it like didn't actually cook the rice very well. Um, and they were they were just sort of like tinkering around. But they ultimately made a tape recorder, which they basically had to invent from like fundamental physics. It was it's a really sort of fascinating story where the technology just wasn't available in Japan for, you know, making the tape and so they were playing with like paper and yeah, ultimately that was what they were able to make the tape out of was like very fine paper as opposed to um I guess cellophane wasn't available in in Japan, couldn't import it at the time. And so that was their first sort of successful product to some extent. But I think he he says that they didn't really know how to interact with consumers and they could only really these were very expensive. So they they sold a bunch of them to the court system, actually, to replace stenographers. So that was, you know, the their first big sale. And um, from there, again, it, it was mostly audio focused technology. I think they, they worked a lot for the. The U.S. government, uh, the occupational government, I guess it wasn't just just the U.S. And so sold c- telecommunications technology sort of uh, for broadcast. Right. And Akio Morita was very involved as a scientist from the beginning, a scientist and an engineer. Um, he had that's something that he talks about throughout the book is his insight into where technology was going. How did he develop that insight? Wh- what was his upbringing like that led him to be such a visionary in the technology field. So his father uh, was very 
uh, wealthy and he did spend money on technology. So from an early age, they had sort of the first um, record player, I guess, in in town. And uh, at the time, it cost, you know, the same as a it was a third of the price of a car, um, a relative actually had made a record player from components. And so that got Akio into reading about electronics and he spent sort of all his time reading magazines about how different technology worked and tinkering with direct experiments and building his own record player, things along those lines. And so he got terrible grades, but he would just spend all his time in his little workshop uh, building these you know, audio technologies from the age of like 14. One thing I really enjoyed in the book was its coverage of Japanese history, including the time of Akio Morita in World War II working for the Navy. How did the work he did in the Navy lead to him joining Sony after the war? So, yeah, he had, I mentioned it earlier, but he met the Sony founder while he was working in, in the Navy, and they were working on night vision and some other military technology, but he basically had a physics lab and, you know, engineering laboratory, which ultimately inspired a lot of the the work that Sony did. They did a lot of fundamental research and ultimately they actually won, a, one of their researchers won a Nobel Prize for the work that he did. Uh, I believe it was in ultimately creating the, uh, the, the Trinitron color system, but I, I could be wrong about that. So after recounting the early history of his own life and Sony, Marita gets into some of the principles that have made Sony successful throughout the decades. What were some of the principles of Sony's success that stood out the most to you while reading the book? Their approach to pay versus what we commonly accept as the conventional wisdom in the United States was totally different. I don't know if this is specific to Sony or just specific to Japanese companies in general, um, but they pay their employee. It almost seemed like they weren't paying their employees according to performance and they were simply paying people according to seniority. We can get more into that later. Another thing that one of my biggest takeaways from this book was that Marita said that innovation doesn't happen without a target, which is a really... Uh, interesting point because there's another famous uh, quote that I always associate with Steve Jobs or that is uh, genius it's a target that no one else can see but anyway so uh, a pretty salient example of this is I believe Ibuka taking out a, a, a notebook and saying that this was the size of the of the technological instrument I think it was a cassette recorder or, so, or maybe it was a cassette tape that was that was the size it needed to be and it, it was just kind of interesting that they were constantly just setting targets not really sure that they were able to achieve them and then ultimately achieving them in most cases well they did have some failures I think uh, one of their vacuum tube systems for a television didn't quite work out as they intended so I would say the compensation structure really st sticks out to me so how do you incentivize people to do good work while they're not earning significant amounts of money? And then the second thing would definitely be continuous innovation and improvement through targets that sometimes seemed like were pulled out of thin air. Yeah, the comp was very interesting. And he claimed that it's actually based off of the occupation government and the way that they 
set standards for Japanese businesses, which was basically that you can't fire people. And so it's very stable, but not necessarily high paying. And he even talks about with their researchers, you know, they're very highly educated. And so they wanted to pay them more like in an American model and pay them a lot more. But if they're going to do that, they needed flexibility. So they offered them short term contracts at like double pay or the traditional you know, lower pay, but you'd be a full-time employee and they wanted to be full-time employees. So it seems like stability, at least in that time, may have been very highly valued. And so people were willing to work for Sony because they thought that it would succeed. And I don't know if they were getting equity or anything like that. He doesn't really talk about that specifically, but um, you're right. It's definitely very different from, from what we see here. And I do think it is is largely a, a Japanese fact more broadly related to the you know requirements around sort of lifetime employment essentially, but um, certainly interesting that they were able to succeed so much with that model where they you know even got Nobel prizes and whatnot. I also think the uh, the needing to set a direction is one of the sort of core things I really took away from this is that he talks about how the Japanese government research is just like a waste of time because they're not setting a, a core focus and you need that vision to inspire the fundamental research. And the example of, yeah, I think it was, uh, he took a book out and said, it needs to be this size and you're going to be able to put an hour of video on it. And like, that's what you're going to figure out. And, you know, that was, that set the standard and they, they were able to deliver on it ultimately. Correct me if I'm wrong, but another one of the principles that Marita touted uh, the importance of was the emphasis of listening to salesmen, salespeople, and kind of really having a customer focus. If I remember correctly, he spent quite a bit of time like visiting stores and doing stuff like that. Whereas uh, I'm not really sure if this is a this would have been a problem at Sony had he not had this emphasis, but certainly a problem at other technology companies. But there can be a tendency to just focus too much on technology without thinking about how that technology is going to deliver value or excitement, whatever, to, to consumers. Yeah, absolutely. He puts a big focus on how it's not just about the technology. You need a marketing team to be able to get that into people's hands and you need really high quality and you need to understand your customers. So it's not. I forget what the three pillars he he listed on it, but I think it was it was like engineering and it was merchandising or marketing. But I forget what the he had some other piece of the the pie that you need, and that it's that balance of everything to actually have a successful business. It's not just we're going to go after crazy technology, but we're going to do that in a way to meet a real customer need, solve a problem, and it might not be something that they know that they need. And so we will be sort of inspiring with the technology, but we're not just going nuts for tech for its own sake. There's that, he called it a Japanese like love of market share. It was really interesting to hear him say towards the end of the book, if I remember correctly, that they would rather than like taking monopoly profits with a patent, they would, compete in the space themselves and then license the patent to other competitors so that they could then like widen the share of the market and increase competition. That was wild. Yeah. I almost couldn't believe that part of it. And I, I felt like the very end of the book was much more of a political diatribe almost in terms of, you know, tax policies that he wanted the, uh, foreign exchange rates he wanted to be fixed and then also the yeah sort of it felt like he was 
um, just trying to make it clear that Sony was never, you know, while we got sued over and over again for um, dumping TVs and stuff, we actually had really high quality products that were more expensive than everything else. Like we clearly weren't doing what people were accusing us of. And not just that, we actually always license the product. We think competition is good. Competition encourages us to design new things, et cetera. And I don't know, as a businessman, I don't know that I would ever want to drop from 100% to 30% share. I guess if, I mean, he's saying he like grew the market so much that they're still growing at the time. And maybe that's true, but it felt like a, I, I wasn't sure if I could like fully trust him in those chapters to some extent. I don't know if you, you had that feeling. Maybe he was selling the competitors components at the same time and he just neglected to mention that. Uh, but coming back to Kopech's original question, uh, branding was pretty powerful and you know, in the 80s and 90s, Sony definitely had like an Apple-like brand that was fantastic. Today, it doesn't really have it. But Merida spent some time uh, really thinking about that and succeeded tremendously with it. And that was certainly a huge part of what made Sony successful. I completely agree with you about the branding. And I think the comparison to Apple is very apt. Interesting fact, in the early 2000s, Sony was one of the only companies in the world that Apple had a technology sharing agreement with. And Steve Jobs even tried to convince the CEO of Sony at the time to create clones of the Mac. And he didn't usually allow anyone to create clones of the Mac. And there's this whole anecdote about him bringing um, one, of, one of Sony's computers, I believe they were called the Vios, a Vio laptop with Mac OS running on it that some Apple engineers had gotten Mac OS to run on it. Um, and he was trying to convince them to, to sell it because he admired Sony so much. And I think a big thing that he admired was the quality of their brand. Okay. Um, I want to read a quote going back to what Molson was talking about regarding employees being involved in the sales process, involved in the whole process of the company. And Marita even talks about that in their training program, they'll have engineers go and spend a month or two working at a store selling Sony products. But they also are very receptive to bringing employee suggestions to management. So here's a quote from page 165. A company will get nowhere if all of the thinking is left to management. Everybody in the company must contribute. And for the lower level employees, that contribution must be more than just manual labor. We insist that all of our employees contribute their minds. Today, we get an average of eight suggestions a year from each of our employees, and most of the suggestions have to do with making their own jobs easier or their work more reliable or a process more efficient. Do you think that American companies are that receptive to the suggestions of their lowest level employees? No, but I certainly try to be in the management of my people. I'm continuously trying to tease ideas out of all the people who report to me because they do the processes, they do the work. So they're the best qualified to make suggestions and improvements. And generally they're quite reticent about making those suggestions. So not only do you have to encourage them to do that, but then you have to celebrate when they do make a good suggestion, when you implement it. And then you have to, well, according to Marita, you don't have to reward them. You only have to <laughs> give them a raise at the end of the year because they're one year older. But at least uh, I try to compensate them financially for the good suggestions that they have. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think it's a common uh, American cultural fact. But at my company, I think there is a very large focus on innovation and finding ways to improve our processes all the time. And so 
literally what I do is build software to improve and, you know, increase the efficiency with which we're able to to do our business. And so I am talking to the people who use that software all the time in order to get suggestions from them. They can submit tickets directly into my backlog for improvements. I don't always do those things, but it's there's certainly an opportunity for for very junior people to improve processes. It's not a coincidence that at many large companies, Amazon included the name of this program where employees make suggestions that hopefully trickle up their way to management is usually called like a Kaizen program. So it sounds like it came from Japan. So in Japan, Marita emphasizes that companies think about their employees as part of the family. And he goes into some of the historical reasons, including laws put in place by the occupation force after World War II that led to a situation of basically lifetime employment. So unlike in America, in Japan in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, if you joined a company, it was expected that you probably would work there for the next 30 years of your life after you joined. How does that create efficiencies, but also how does that create inefficiencies and how does that compare to the very competitive labor market that we have in the United States? It just makes it very hard for businesses to react in times of turmoil. I mean, it's probably better for employees in a lot of ways to have that consistency, but there's probably some stagnation that happens as well when you're just doing the same thing. You do learn by working in different companies and seeing different ways that things are done as opposed to just continuing in one um, place forever? It's a really complicated question. And let me try to answer it by asking another question. All right. So let's say uh, how many people does Japan have? It's got like 120 million. And the population of the United States is roughly 300 million, right? Uh, We also, our country has like numerous geographical advantages. We've got way more land. We've got way more resources. If you took 120 Americans, put them on the islands of Japan, and then took, uh, you just magically created 300 million Japanese, and then you put them in the United States, how much higher, because I think we'd all agree that it would be higher, how much higher would the the 300 million Japanese in America GDP be than uh, America's GDP is today? Well, I have to say, I think you made a lot of assumptions there. Uh, It's an incredible hypothetical situation that our listeners are contemplating right now. I would have to say, though, that I don't agree with your assumption that GDP would necessarily be higher of 300 million Japanese than necessarily 300 million Americans. Uh, We've seen stagflation in Japan starting in the 1990s up through today, caused by government policies, but maybe also, as David mentioned, some difficulties in the flexibility of their labor market. So I think you need to preface your hypothetical situation with whether or not we have the same labor rules in place for the 300 million Japanese versus the 300 million Americans. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I also think that it's just kind of a, it's a hard thing to know because what does that even mean you know like once everyone in Japan is now an American like it's just everything fundamentally changes so uh, yes I think I think that the per capita GDP is like higher in Japan right now I'm not sure if that actually is still the case I know I know it was not not long ago um, but the structure of the market in Japan is very different also and I do think that like 
I am fundamentally more in favor of free markets in many ways. So including uh, with exchange rates, including with labor laws. And I think that the advantage of being able to be flexible in times of you know catastrophe is valuable and the stability and reliability might be nice for the people in that economy. I think that's sort of the the distinction is that I think you are better off uh, as an economy when things are more chaotic and you're able to react. But as an individual, you know, being able to trust that I'm going to have the same job for 60 years is probably a much more peaceful life than what many Americans have. A little bit of live research. Uh, current GDP per capita at purchasing power parity for 2018, according to the International Monetary Fund, is 62,000 US dollars in the United States and is 44,000 US dollars in Japan at purchasing power parity. It's hard to make a comparison. Uh, what's Cutter? Cutter on this list. We don't really think number of one at one hundred and thirty thousand per year. All right. Well, ooh, Qatar must be you know the greatest economy in the world. No, it's, they have lots of oil. The United States has lots of oil too. So it's 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 difficult to compare the kind of economic innovative productivity of different companies by GDP per capita purchasing power parity alone. Going back to your original, let me go back to my question first. I think it'd be a lot higher, and. Going back to your original question, it's possible that the two, like, as Marita said, it's possible that the system in Japan, even though he says it was imposed on them by foreigners, by Americans, that system is what works for Japanese culture. And the system in the United States is what works for American culture. And it wouldn't be possible for one country to adopt the other so easily. And so, yeah, there are pros and cons in theory, but maybe there are mostly cons to changing it simply because of the there are just differences in the way we think. Yeah, I agree with you. And I would say one of my main takeaways from the book about the differences between American and Japanese culture is that both cultures like competition, but different kinds of competition. And tell me if you agree with this analysis from the book. Basically, in America, we believe in individual competition, and that's what we really strive for, is being the best individual. But in Japan, they're really into competition, but they're into group competition. They're into being the best country as a whole or being the best company as a whole, more than they're into being the best individual player uh, for any given task. Is that a fair analysis? I don't speak Japanese. I've only spent 24 hours in Japan, but that seems completely correct. And it's also quite quintessentially Asian. Uh, the one thing I'd say, though, is that Marita in the book definitely comes across as quite an individualist for a Japanese. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of Asian cultures, there's much more of a collectivist approach to the family, especially. And so he talks a little bit about becoming the head of the family when his father dies. And I don't know if you guys actually know about this, but that's actually a, a legal thing in Japan and in Korea. I don't know if China has the same structure, but there is a head of household. And actually, like it means a lot in terms of paperwork and like government documents that like they are responsible, I think, for like the taxes of everyone in the family kind of and things like that, that that's actually how the government interacts with sort of individuals is through that head of the family. And I think that sort of translates to some degree to then businesses as well, right? That we are thinking of ourselves a lot in America and how, you know, I might be doing on my team, 
I mean, I certainly care a lot about how my whole company performs and I do get compensated a lot with equity that is, is based on that. But uh, I, I think it is a cultural difference that is for sure clear in what Marita talks about. But I also agree with Molson that it's a little bit broader to, to a lot of Asian cultures. Have you guys heard those stories about Japanese families, families like Marita's, what was it, uh, liquor business? Once at times they don't have like a male hair, male, geez, I can't say anything. They don't have a heir to take over the business. And so the Japanese family will actually just adopt someone who's not part of the family, actually adopt them, give them a new last name to have them to continue the line of some sort of age old business that they've had, like in Marita's case, but obviously they had an heir. One other positive aspect of lifetime employment that we didn't really touch on is how it makes an employee more comfortable with the thing we mentioned earlier, which is making suggestions. So maybe you're willing to go to loggerheads with somebody else if you're, you know you probably are unlikely to get fired for doing so. And a lot of, he does mention that in Japanese culture, there is a lot of group conformity or at least a stereotype as such. But at Sony in particular, they encourage disagreement more so than at the average Japanese company. Them encouraging disagreement more than the average Japanese company may mean that there's still less disagreement, open disagreement at Sony than there is at the bottom quartile American company. Uh, he says later in the book that it's quite difficult for Japanese people to disagree with a friend openly, whereas Americans will only disagree with you if you are friends. And once they go silent on you, that's really when you need to worry about what they think about you. What are some other unique aspects of Japanese business that Marita highlights throughout the book? I found the motainai concept really interesting, um, which is, I guess he, he talks about it as being kind of like waste as sacrilege almost, that people are so focused on resources because of how constrained Japan has been historically, that no one is willing to waste anything. He gives actual facts about how, you know, recycling is much higher in Japan than in other countries. Um, but that he, and he even has a story of a, a Japanese businessman in New York who like confided in him that he, uh, you know, had a problem when he, came, when he came to his apartment, it was just filled with newspapers because like no one in Japan would ever throw out a newspaper. There's someone who comes around and, you know, exchanges the newspaper for toilet paper. And so the guy just had this huge piles everywhere. It was filling up his whole apartment. And so he uh, had to explain to the guy that, you know, it's, it's okay here. People won't, you know, judge you for throwing it out. And so he hired someone to come pick it up. But uh, I think that in general, that is definitely the case, though, that in America, there is much more of a sort of wasteful mentality. I think that's probably changed a lot now relative to the mid 80s when this was written. But I think it's probably still quite true that we are much more willing to waste than people, honestly, you know, anywhere in the world, but probably especially relative to Japan. Marita lived in New York, and he traveled extensively throughout his career in the entire United States. He was pretty critical of some aspects of American culture and in particular American business culture. What were some of those aspects that he was critical of? Lawyers. He loved to hate on lawyers and I think he was completely justified in that. He talked a lot about how the American system 
So let's first talk about apparently how lawyers work in Japan. In Japan, if you file a lawsuit and uh, you don't win that lawsuit, you pay the other side's legal fee, the other side's legal fees, which provides a pretty strong disincentive to file frivolous lawsuits. In the United States, that's not the case, and as a result, according to Merida, there's significant numbers of frivolous lawsuits, and it's a real drag on the overall economy. He also talks about how that infiltrates like the general innovative culture. Of or lack thereof in the United States. So Americans, if they're facing competition from outside or even competition within the United States from another party, rather than innovating and competing directly by releasing better products, what they'll do is they'll just seek out legal options, legal recourse in order to restrict competition and fight their competitors in that way. And generally, that's not a good thing for consumers, America, or the economy in general. Yeah, there's a quote. Uh, American businessmen seem to think it is natural way, uh, always to be looking over their shoulders to see who's coming up behind them with a lawsuit. Um, I think that the his perspective on legal culture in America was definitely interesting, but it's actually broader than just that you have to pay legal fees. In Japan, you actually have to put up a significant deposit to get the court case even heard. And so that I think is probably going too far to some extent also. So there's there's a balance between uh, encouraging frivolous lawsuits and preventing legitimate ones. And essentially the Japanese system is such that you just have to be wealthy to be able to use the court system. And I don't know that that's necessarily the, the best way to structure things either. Marita mentions that one of the reasons that they need less lawyers in Japan is because there's more trust that in Japanese culture, because, well, in the Japanese nation, because most people share a culture, share an ethnicity, share a language, there's naturally more trust between them. And that trust is just a larger part of their culture. And so that business agreements can be done on handshakes instead of on contracts. Does that sound safe? I mean, it sounds like a nice way for things to work if it really does work, but I would just imagine that there are nefarious people in Japan, just like there are anywhere else. And so ultimately having real contracts that guarantee, you know, specific remedies for situations that can come about are, I think, a good thing to have. It's better to have someone that you can trust, uh, but you never really can. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that I would feel comfortable engaging in multimillion dollar transactions without any kind of, you know, contracts. I wouldn't feel comfortable either, but we, we tend to think of Japan as a weird country. But in this case, based on the international business I've done, it's actually the United States that's the weird one. Typically, deals are done much more through relationships and meals and trust building than they are through contracts. So Marita is very critical of lawyers. He's also critical of consultants. I'm going to read a quote here from page 219 about consultants. Next to lawyers... I think these people are the most overused and misused businessmen on the scene in the United States and Japan. I use consultants selectively and have found the best ones can do valuable information gathering and market analysis, but their use can be brought to ridiculous extremes, and it has been. Often, when the market research proves to be wrong, the excuse is heard that market conditions changed after the study was done. So what is the use of it? David, you're a former consultant. Can you respond to that? Yeah, I, I thought it was funny. Um, I think that there are certainly lots of terrible consultants and terrible projects that aren't useful to people. I think I worked on uh, 
projects that mostly were pretty interesting and I think did add value for our clients. But a lot of, and a lot of it was basically market research type things in the sense that a lot of the projects I worked on were uh, sort of blue sky strategy projects that what business should we be in five years from now, given the position that we're in and the competitive dynamics we're facing. And so we could bring a lot of knowledge from around the world about what was going on in you know other countries that allowed our clients to get perspective on opportunities that they might not have thought about. And I think a lot of what consultants do is break down barriers internally to change. I think that in a lot of companies, there's a lot of stagnation. And so having an external party be there who's getting paid very highly for the supposed value of their advice allows change to happen because it's not just a political decision anymore. Now there is some presumably neutral third party and we are able to get things to change. I mean, certainly not always if a company is fundamentally mismanaged. I don't think any consultant is going to solve that, but it's more when there are sort of small political problems, having that uh, neutral party can be really helpful. And honestly, I think that's one of the highest value things consulting partners can add is really understanding the dynamics and culture within a company and seeing, okay, we're seeing resistance. No one's giving us data. So clearly there's some something going wrong. And, oh, this is the person that I need to get to win over. This person trusts this other person. So if I get that person, then I'll get this person. And that's how we'll actually, you know, get things to move forward and not just be stalled by, you know, one person playing games. But consultants aren't always neutral, right? So I've heard in large companies, if a particular executive who has the power to hire consultants wants to make a particular change, what he can do is hire a consulting firm and kind of intimate, wink, wink, say, hey, this is the conclusion I want you to reach at the end of your reporting. Then the company pays the whatever, the hundreds of thousands of dollars for the consultant report. And by leveraging that report, the executive can then affect the change within his own company where he otherwise would not have been able to do that. And that change may or may not even be correct for the company. And the consultant kind of has a pretty strong incentive to just please the executive at the risk of doing the wrong thing for the company in order to win the business. So, I mean, I'm sure that that has happened. That is something we explicitly say we don't do. Um, Has someone at the company I worked at done it at some point, you know, I, I have no idea if there's you know thousands of people over, you know, decades. So sure, it could have happened, but you do risk the credibility of the firm. And so that is the, th- I mean, and, but the problem with consulting is it is kind of transactional in the sense that, again, the, the partner could get the benefit and not risk as much of the sort of cost of devaluing the brand of that firm because you gave advice that ultimately proved to be inaccurate. But uh, I certainly was never on a project where we were rubber stamping something that the executive wanted. It's certainly easier if the conclusions you're coming to align with what it is that the people think. But honestly, a lot of that is what the consultant is doing is meeting with those people in the interim so that you have gotten them on board with the direction that you think is the right one. You've answered their questions beforehand. So it's not in front of the board that they're, you know, disagreeing and and yelling at you. Instead, they've done that beforehand. You've presented them the evidence that shows why what they thought before isn't necessarily right. Now, that doesn't, again, doesn't always work. Like if someone's really adamantly against you, giving them data that proves that they're wrong doesn't necessarily convince them. But uh, yeah, I would say it's certainly a risk that that could be what, what a consultant is doing. Or 
I mean, to some extent could be valuable to that executive to be able to get just some rubber stamp on whatever it was that they want. But I don't think that that, I mean, it's, it's not hundreds of thousands, it's often millions of dollars. And I think it would be, um, foolish and risky for any individual person to actually follow through on that and just do whatever it is that they think if they, if they think that that executive is wrong, especially. I worked very briefly in healthcare management consulting. I got out of there as soon as I could to go to grad school in computer science. But um, I will say that a lot, in my own opinion, a lot of what Marita wrote rings true to me, but I think it's really going to depend industry to industry. And so I think if you have a consultant who is in one industry and is constantly going from firm to firm in that industry, that creates all kinds of moral hazards and disincentives that can be a little bit dangerous. Uh, But if somebody's more broadly a management consultant across industries, I think that perhaps less of these disadvantages exist. I think Short made a bunch of really good points, but I just want to say there's this really great Munger anecdote, Charlie Munger anecdote or story where he says at the termination of every consultant's report in the conclusion section, they always say this, they effectively always say the same thing, which is what this company really needs in order to solve its problems is more consulting. (laughs) That's pretty good. Okay. Um, and yes, that's true. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> no, but I mean, fundamentally, yes, right? right? You're always trying to sell the next project. It doesn't mean that, yeah, I, I don't think there was ever an end of a project where we were just like, well, we solved all of your problems and you don't need to talk to us ever again. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> Towards the end of the book, as you mentioned before, David, it gets a little bit more political. And Marita in particular goes into quite a bit of detail about international trade policies. We have to remember the context. This is the late 1980s when Japan was putting the kind of trade pressure on the United States that China is today. And there was a lot of concern about whether America could even compete with Japan going forward. So what are some of Morita's anecdotes to alleviate some of the trade tension He talked a lot about how when they implemented quotas, it was actually American companies themselves that were doing significant amounts of importing from Japan. In some case, if I remember correctly, he brought up a TV example, but the most salient example for me was like Chrysler and Lee Iacocca, just like pressuring the U.S. government to raise the quotas as much as he could so they could import more cars from Japan. Yeah, he also talks a lot about the need to exchange information, actually. So he basically says that antitrust law in the U.S. makes it very difficult for um, companies that are in the same industry to meet and have any discussions because it just looks like they might be colluding and trying to set prices or something. And that what he wants is to have these exchanges led by governments. And so he got the Japanese and UK government to create one. Um, and then I think they, they sort of broadened it and had a bunch of these sessions throughout Europe. But basically the sort of TV manufacturers or high technology companies to some extent in Japan and in the UK would meet, they could talk about where they saw the future of the technology because he felt like, 
that way there would be local competitors who are succeeding in a business and it's more likely to be kind of a balanced competition where everyone is growing the market and succeeding and then there's less of a hatred than if it's just entirely dominated by this external party um again i i don't know how much i trusted this really he basically was saying like we just want to meet and tell you where the future of technology is coming from 10 years from now so that you know you can succeed too and it just Maybe it is a just Japanese mentality or something, but the, the American in me was just like, wait, why do you want to give away the future to your competitors in other countries? Um, and it just it felt a little bit like it was uh, propaganda for like the Japanese being good business partners, not like what the Americans were afraid of. Then maybe real. I don't know. He, he didn't seem to have very specific facts on some technology that he told some of these people about that was going to end up being the future and that we could sort of back check it and see that he was actually cooperating and not just, I don't know, maybe maybe they were actually colluding. They, that we, the more and more we hear about it, there are a lot of industries where these uh, presumably positive meetings of minds is actually some subtext for, you know, fixing a rate. As one anecdote to the issues with international trade imbalances, Marita criticizes free-floating currency exchange rates. And he contrasts the earlier system where exchange rates would be fixed by governments every certain amount of time. It even would last sometimes for decades, those fixed rates, versus the modern system where exchange rates are free-floating. And he criticizes a lot money men, as he calls it, uh, people who make their living manipulating currency exchanges. And he broadens that to criticize also people who are in the business of mergers and acquisitions and buying and selling companies. So I think I'm actually touching on a couple issues in this question, but let's talk first about why he's against free-floating ex exchange rates. So he's against free-floating exchange rates because it makes it really difficult to do international business. Uh, I have this problem all the time. So let's say you're a manufacturer and you're operating on a margin that's like 10 to 20% of the price of the goods you're selling. Sometimes currencies can, can move in ways that can eat up your entire profit margin, basically making it so that international business becomes impossible. And he, Marita blames this on money, man. Uh, I posted this on Twitter and someone said like, hey, why don't you just hedge uh, your currency, like lock it in for a year. So as a manufacturer, you can lock in a price so that your profit margins aren't threatened by fluctuations. But then someone else on Twitter said that if the currency moves in one direction or another in a significant way, you'll actually get a margin call, which can be even more expensive than dealing with the currency itself. So there isn't really a good solution for this problem. And to my eye, so I do a lot of trade with China. China has a fixed exchange rate. It's not free floating at all, even though they say it is. And it's no coincidence that while they've had this fixed exchange rate over the same period, Chinese manufacturers have thrived. I, I'm not really sure you, you, those companies would be able to exist if they had to exist under the volatility of like constantly fluctuating USD RMB rates for you know the reasons I gave before with the, their, their narrow profit margins. Yeah, I mean, I think it's essentially self-serving, though. So, yes, absolutely. For companies operating internationally, fixed exchange rates are much easier to operate under than having to deal with the volatility of the market. 
Merida wants something that would be best for Sony. I think for the global economy, though, free floating exchange rates are good because they lead to uh, investment changes so that we actually put money in the right places. So when you hold things like in Bretton Woods or yeah, so I, I guess this this was coming only probably 15 years after Bretton Woods had collapsed. So we'd had about 25 years of entirely fixed exchange rates where the US dollar was pegged to gold and then all of the other major global currencies were pegged to the US dollar. And yes, during that time, it does make it easier and more predictable to do your exchange as an international business, but it you know, means that the government is entirely controlling the monetary system and it's not subject to market forces also. What he'd suggested was that instead it should be like an annual review by the IMF of what these fixed rates are and they can only move by some certain percentage. I, I don't know. Like, I'm just very skeptical that that's the way that the international economic system should work is that like governments just mandate this is how much you exchange this for that. And like, if things change within an economy, you don't, you know, actually reflect that in terms of the, you know, wealth that's available there relative to the, you know, the price of the currency. So I don't know. I'm, I, I tend to be more um, laissez faire with all of this stuff. So he- I'm sure that as a businessman, it would be frustrating. I believe you, but I do think like hedging and whatnot, there are, there are, actions to take. I'm not an expert on it, so I'm sure that those things are complicated, but I don't think that that means that governments should, you know, fix rates. Governments still set interest rates and they still control how much money they print, and that can have a lot of effect on uh, currency rates. But I'm not sure he was totally against the free flow of capital when it came to trade. It seemed like it seemed like he he was okay with floating exchange rates provided that those exchange rates were predominantly determined by trade. It seemed like he kind of resented the involvement in, as I think Kopak said, money men, speculators, and how speculators can come in and significantly change an exchange rate, which can then affect the economy. He was okay with exchange rates changing as a result of trade flows. I mean, he explicitly said he wanted it to be fixed for like one year at a time. So, I mean, no, he, he wasn't okay with it. He, you're right that he was his focus was on the money men. And I think that's why he's saying, you know, have it be an annual thing. And then it'll be clear that, you know, trade has really changed. And that's why we're we're making the shift. But even then, he still wanted it to be like fixed by how much it could change. So, again, I, th- I think it's 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 pretty self-serving. Um, and yeah, it w- I mean, it would be serving you as well. So <laughs> any, anyone who's operating in a in a you know global environment would prefer to not have to deal with the complexities of that and not, not have to think about it. Like I, I agree, it's it's com- complicated and difficult, but that doesn't mean that like all the currency should be fixed. We'd, let's let's just all use Bitcoin. What's so these- your answer then to my point about like narrow profit mount margins on manufacturers and volatility and exchange rates? Yeah, hedge hedge the risk. But we just said that you can't really hedge the risk. I mean that's that's what I, that's apparently what you I said learned. One on Twitter. person on Twitter told you that. Yeah, I, but I, I think mean, it's, it's consistent. <laughs> the cost of hedging the risk is is significant relative to your profit margin as a manufacturer. Okay, I think as a manufacturer, of course you want fixed rates, of course, and that's what worked so well for Japan in the fifties, sixties, and seventies as they were growing their export economy. Having fixed rates was a huge boon to them, just as you described before. It's a huge boon for China the last couple decades. So if you're an export nation or you're a company involved in import-export primarily, then of course you're going to prefer fixed rates. But 
is that the fairest way to handle currency? I think Marita has a real point about money men. I mean, there's the classic story about George Soros nearly crashing the British pound uh, by manipulating reserves of, of the British pound. Uh, that's terrible that, that one individual can go and nearly crash a country's economy, uh, one individual with his firm and, and resources, of course. I think that's dangerous. And I think there has to be controls in place to prevent that. And I think Marita is right about that. And I think both of you are right in your own ways, but I think you're coming from different perspectives. And I think that David's right, that Marita is coming from a biased perspective as a largely exporter. Um, he, of course, is going to prefer fixed exchange rates. But was he largely an exporter? I mean, he spoke of the whole book about how he built plants, one in California, one in Ireland, another one in Wales. Uh, it sounds like he, he built factories all over the place. Maybe that was because he just wanted to give the appearance of contributing to local economies. He seemed to say that throughout the book. But it, he also imported products from the United States to Japan. Again, that could have been BS. But it seemed like he wasn't just you know in exporting products from Japan all over the world and and so they wouldn't have insight on the exchange of goods as opposed to just export from Japan in order to you know hollow out American business well i think that all of those plants he mentioned used japanese components to produce their televisions produce their stereos and so there was a large amount of japanese goods being exported to the nation in question even if they had a local sony factory um, and then in addition, I think a big part of this is just planning. And I'm sure Molson, in your industry, you must have to do planning many months out. And when exchange rates change in that time period, it can be very burdensome. So of course, for planning, having a fixed exchange rate can create efficiencies. Uh, absolutely. So currently, uh, Trump's trade policies are about as volatile as an exchange rate. And because we have tariffs, but because we don't know whether or not Trump will change the tariffs or change his mind in the next couple of months, it's enormously difficult to plan and shift production from one country to another because you never know when he's going to change his mind. And whether China will respond with currency manipulation. <laughs> okay, that was a lively exchange. Is there anything we missed about the book that you'd like our listeners to know? Yeah, I, I'm trying to pull up the page on the book, but one of my favorite parts of the book, because I think it has a tremendous positive effect on not only our learning, but you know what it means to be American, what it means to be American going forward, is going back to my point, or Marita's point earlier, that in order to be innovative, you need to have a target. And one of the most powerful examples he cited of this, besides the size of the notebook, cassette recorder, whatever it was, is Kennedy kind of delivering that speech saying that at the end of 10 years, we're going to go to the moon. It's true. You need a target. And I, I think the United States definitely needs a target. And that target should absolutely be Mars 2030. Thanks, Elon. Um, the other thing that we just didn't talk about that I found really interesting were his chip to China and the Soviet Union. And so he just goes into detail about the total disaster of the Chinese uh, factories he would go into. And so basically they had just bought Japanese factories and they brought in all the technology that the Japanese factory had, but they hadn't actually thought through the business at all. So they didn't have the right components to be able to actually build the things that they needed. The 
people were just kind of smoking cigarettes and hanging out around this really expensive technology. And so he um, basically was saying that the central planning just was not working effectively and that they were trying to bring in, you know, high technology, but that they really needed to start with just using their cheap labor. He had like really good advice that I think ultimately is essentially what what China did and how they they ultimately did succeed. So um, I found that really interesting. And then uh, in I forget where in the Soviet Union he'd gone exactly, but he was looking at their TV and they like asked him for his advice of whether they could sell it in um, Europe and the West. And he was just like, no, you cannot. This is too ugly to be merchandisable. Uh, But I don't want to offend you. So I will take it back to my engineers and give you some like technical advice on how you can improve it. But um, I've just found those anecdotes uh, really interesting. Yeah, that was great. So the Soviet ambassador would be like, and Mr. Marita, what do you think about this TV? And Marita, you wouldn't give his opinion immediately he would he would like kind of i imagined him he'd look around the room and be like can i be honest and then the soviet ambassador or whatever whoever that guy was would be like yes you can and then marita would just tear into it completely and this anecdote was like repeated as they walked through like different parts of the factory and it was it's pretty fun yeah, I love the so- the uh, Soviet Union anecdote as well. Uh, I believe there was something about bureaucracy there where there was a person in charge of making one of the televisions. And Marita said something like, well, you might have some okay engineering here, but you also need to incorporate aspects of art and design. And the, the uh, person in charge said, well, Mr. Marita, we can't do that because we're not in charge of art and design. So in other words, they were, they were saying that in the Soviet system, you have such a top-down prescription of what you're able to do that there's no maneuverability. So this book was such an interesting deep dive into the differences between Japanese and American culture, history, business. Molson, I think you actually have an anecdote about your family and its family business when you were growing up. Uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. So my parents ended up in 2009, they, they founded a medical devices company that was called American Diagnostica. And they ended up at the at the trough, the bottom of the financial crisis. They did OK, but it happened to be at the trough of the financial crisis. They ended up selling their company to a Japanese company called uh, Sikisui. And it was super fascinating to not only watch how the company got sold, and to see the kind of the clash of two cultures leading up to the sale, the clash of two cultures with the kind of insertion of Japanese executives into an American company. And then finally, that Japanese company ended up suing uh, my parents for, among other things, fraud. And they, they even ended up suing me. Uh, excuse me, the Japanese company didn't sue me. That comes a little bit later. But it, it was extremely just crazy to kind of see how that happened. Kind of, you set the foreground or the background of what happened. Um, a bunch of my father's uh, relatives actually died in World War II to the to the Japanese. My dad was from New Zealand, so they were kind of like fighting in, in the Pacific arena. And it was somewhat. And throughout his childhood, he was kind of instructed by his father to really, obviously, if your brothers you know, died of the Japanese, you're you're not going to think of them too favorably. But my grandfather instructed my father to always beware the Japanese, beware the Japanese. He didn't say it quite like that, but he told him to be careful. 
So I don't know how many years later that would have been, probably about 60 years later, he ended up selling his company to the Japanese. And as a part of that sales process, we would end up at these dinners where it would be me, my father, my mother, and there'd be 10 Japanese salary men, most of whom who can speak English at all. And, you know, sometimes my dad at some of these dinners, he got drunk and, you know, he would talk about World War Two. <laughs> and then my mom would like hit him under the table and like try to get him to shut up, shut up because obviously they both wanted the sale to happen. That didn't seem like a good way to sell the company. Um, anyhow, the company ended up getting purchased by Sakisui. And I don't know, something didn't really go well. After the fact, uh, the company performance declined or the, uh, the Japanese, maybe there was a class of cultures. I don't really know. I, I was maybe 22 years at the time. And the only thing I really remember was that I'd go to the office and all the Japanese employees who were ins- inserted into the American company, they would work like really late until eight o'clock. But actually what they do is around like 5.30, 6 p.m., they would just stay at the office and just like browse the Internet. So they were kind of like conforming to that Japanese ideal of long working hours, but not really, uh, you know, working. <laughs> they just like kind of needed to hit seven or eight in order to conform with that idea. So things didn't really go well. The Japanese company ended up suing my parents for fraud. And what's interesting is that all this kind of like ties into uh, what Marita said about lawyers. Basically, ultimately, uh, the fraud charges were dismissed with prejudice. In other words, uh, a court, and we even had a trial in New York with a federal judge, a famous federal judge, was basically like, "Your, my parents did not commit fraud. These these claims are a total joke. You can't even appeal this decision. It's totally wrong. And uh, my parents didn't pay the Japanese company a dime. My parents didn't commit fraud. Basically, what I think it was, it was just like a misunderstanding and a lack of experience when it came to the American legal system. And they just didn't really understand how things work. And their American lawyers kind of misinformed the Japanese and told them to just kind of go for it because the American lawyers had a strong financial incentive. And talking negatively about lawyers, at the beginning of this process, I went to our own lawyers and I said, hey, can't we just like fly over to Osaka where this Japanese company is based kind of as an olive branch in order to work things out? And our attorneys at the time were like, under no circumstances, can you do that? That would be illegal. And it was just bullshit. (laughs) Um, It wasn't true at all. We absolutely could have done that. And I've learned that now uh, with a great deal more of legal experience. And uh, it just kind of shows you how uh, the legal system in the United States doesn't work. Foreign companies get caught up in it. American companies get caught up in it if they don't really understand how it works themselves, if they don't have legal experience. But um, ultimately, everything turned out okay, especially for the lawyers who were involved. They ended up making a lot of money, but it was a wonderful window into kind of Japanese culture, Japanese misunderstanding, and what can go awry when uh, East meets West. Well, so long as the lawyers won. <laughs> yeah, they, they won. They, the lawyers did very well. Um, absolutely. Uh Yeah. So I'll explain what I said. I I misspoke and I said that I was sued by the Japanese. What happened was our lawyers ended up charging my parents just like an absolutely phenomenal amount. And then my parents went and they got other lawyers and said like, hey, are these legal bills correct? And those lawyers were like, no, no, no. Those legal bills aren't correct. You should totally fight that. 
So my parents ended up uh, like basically rejecting some of the legal bills that they were charged by their lawyers. In the process of that, the law firm that was employed by my, my parents ended up suing me because they <laughs> accused my parents of like funneling assets to me in order to, to frustrate a judgment. And that also wasn't true. Anyhow, my parents went through that and they lost that one. So they ended up having to pay all the old legal bills and then their new lawyers, additional legal bills. So lawyers did fine. So are you saying they were funneling things to you? No, um, the uh, they were not, but they were accused of that. So basically what happened was the lawyers which defended my parents when they were sued by the Japanese company were told by my parents on the advice of new lawyers that the bills were unreasonable. So lawyers can engage in things called like block billing. And basically, the, so what a lawyer will do on an invoice is they'll be like, yeah, I worked on this. And they'll be like, I worked on the complaint. And it'll have like 10 hours at like $700 an hour. What a lawyer is actually supposed to do is they're kind of like supposed to break it down like at least like every 30 minutes in terms of the different things that they were worked on. So the invoices appear more reasonable. My parents told their lawyers like, Hey, uh, the many millions of dollars of bills you charge us are unreasonable on the advice of other lawyers. Then the lawyers who were owed this money sued my parents and me saying that one, my parents owed unpaid legal bills and two, they thought that they were transferring assets to me and therefore that I needed to be sued. Uh, what ended up happening is that I, uh, I ended up getting a call from New York state court saying like, Hey, you, in about four hours, uh, you, you, all your assets are going to be frozen. You are in your family. I don't really understand why I got this call. And at the time we had no lawyer. It was like kind of a surprise asset freeze that was perpetrated by my parents' former lawyers. And what I did is I just like, I got my mom and I got my dad and we just like drove into New York City into state court. And I ended up appearing before a judge against our former lawyers. And like, I would be like, look, this is unfair. This is unreasonable. Give us time to, you know, find a lawyer. Like, I don't know what any of this is. And the judge like, we ended up like the judge granted us that time and stuff like that. And she was just trying to get me to shut up the whole time. But I was just like, you know, because she didn't want me to like put my foot in my mouth and I didn't know what I was doing, but effectively we ended up uh, being okay. And we were allowed time to uh, receive a lawyer and I was dismissed from the lawsuit. It was a terrible experience, particularly for my parents. Um, but at least for me, even though it was hard and difficult, it was kind of a good thing because I ended up learning about all this stuff. Okay. Uh, how would you say that's related to Japan? Not at all. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so how is it related to Japan? I mean, uh, if you go to a country and you don't understand how the legal system works, particularly if the legal system is different from the way in which your country's legal system works, you can get in a lot of trouble. And that's basically what happened to the Japanese. I mean, I, I don't know if there were some weird intra-company dynamics there. Uh, maybe the, the business didn't go well and the Japanese executive who was responsible for purchasing the American company saw the, uh, the lawsuit as a way of saving face. But I just think that the Japanese had no idea what they were doing in America and they didn't know what they were getting into. It was probably the first American company that they bought 
And when things didn't work in a typically Japanese way, when the employees didn't want to work until eight o'clock every night, they, were, they pulled the ripcord and they ended up filing a lawsuit at probably the wrong advice of American attorneys. So how does it relate to the Japanese? You know, cultures are different. Legal systems are different. When those things mix, you can get in a lot of trouble. So my dad was a corporate lawyer also, and uh, but uh, a RISA attorney. So it's the Employee Retirement Invest Income Securities Act. And he said that the reason he chose that field of law was that he felt like a lot of other branches of law, he'd feel like he'd end up on one side or another of a bad case where, you know, you're having to defend someone for something that you think is is fundamentally incorrect and you're just having to to do it because you're you're paid to. But with ERISA, all you're doing is trying to help companies to implement the government regulations in the most efficient way that they can. So there's no like bad side of the case. I have a question for you guys. Did you guys have Japanese kids at your high school? We did have, well, in my middle school, I did have an exchange student from, not really exchange student, I went to the American school in London for a couple of years when I was a tween, let's say. Uh, and we did have several Japanese students there. Um, and they were incredible students coming from the Japanese education system. Um, they, they really had uh, a leg up in some ways over us, a lot of us at the American School in London were coming from the US, obviously, and they seemed a lot better prepared for uh, our classes. I had the same experience. Um, I went to a public high school and there were a bunch of Japanese students there. Um, unclear why that was, but they were all one to two years ahead in math. And I, I don't mean that like me just commenting that they were that their math skills were one to two years better. Like literally the Japanese students were taking classes with the smartest kids who were one to two years older than they were. And it was just like that across the board. And they all, after school, they all went to cram school at like a local Japanese school. And it was just, it was, it was hard not to get the impression that they were just not only something else, but just a lot more capable. And they always kind of kept to themselves and, it's just kind of interesting. And Marita does touch on the Japanese education system in the book. He has concerns that some parents in Japan, this is again in 1986, are being too rigid, making their children study all day long and then they get to college and they feel like they've already made it because they studied so much to get there that once they're there, they can't really mess things up for themselves. So they then become a little bit less... Uh, what's the word, enthusiastic about their studies once they're in college. And he contrasts that with the American system. He says, oh, the American kids are not getting such a great education in K through 12. He's kind of saying between the lines, but then they get to college and then actually the American college system tests them a lot more and makes them work a lot harder. The big knock on Asian education, particularly when it comes to Chinese education, is that it doesn't teach team building and it doesn't teach creativity that whereas the American education does a terrible job teaching you like how to add two numbers together, but it's really good at team building and creativity. It, I don't know a ton about the Japanese schooling system, but it seems like they've got that under control somehow. Um, Japanese people seem to work very well as a team. I know from speaking to Chinese people, they always speak very highly of Japanese teamwork. And if you just like look at how innovative Sony was or how innovative Japanese people or Japanese companies are, it seems like they get it done when it comes to innovation as well. So I, 
America has certainly a lot to learn from Japan in general, but it really seems like we could definitely use a Japanese education system, despite notwithstanding what Marita said. Well, I, I think Marita makes a lot of good points. I think he is saying that um, that we have something to learn from the Japanese education system, especially around teaching basic rote skills. And we could have a long conversation here about Common Core versus uh, memorization versus uh, kind of more freeform learning independently. I think that one thing I'm seeing as a college professor is students coming into even a computer science program without requisite math skills. And you wonder how sometimes how somebody could have graduated high school without some of the math skills that they, that they didn't receive in, in that time. Um, and I think it's a real concern for us nationally. Yeah, uh, I, I agree completely. It's also really embarrassing. Um, there's a really famous, important country developing politician named Lee Kuan Yew. You guys probably both know. And uh, he almost died to the Japanese. He's from Singapore and he, he relates in a story in a book he wrote, I think called My Singapore Story, how like the Japanese soldiers who were absolutely brutal during the war, literally lopping people's heads off. Um, you know, they almost killed him. Anyhow, he ends up becoming prime minister of Singapore. And what does he do? I wouldn't call it an about face, but he ended up creating a campaign called like the learn from Japan campaign. And so he ended up like spending a lot of time kind of like Marita suggested, uh, creating cross country company meetings and meeting with Japanese learn uh, leaders. So he could just learn as much as he could possibly and then apply it to Singapore. And I really, you know, America is number one, absolutely. We're the most powerful economic and military force in the United, in the world. But it, I feel like we have so much to learn from the Japanese when it comes to waste, invasion, hard work, so many different things, notwithstanding the horrors that they perpetrated in World War, World War II. I wish we could kind of just swallow our pride a little bit and maybe even have like a, a learn from Japan campaign. Uh, just saying that the thought of that sounds so ridiculous in America, but it's probably what we need. Well, if we, if we could summarize Marita's views, I think he's basically saying that he does not at all envy our K through 12 system, but he does envy our university system. He was pretty clear about that. Um, so I think we could learn a lot about K through 12 education from the Japanese for sure. I'm not a hundred percent sold on that though. I think the, in Korea and in Japan, there's just like a, crazy focus on the examinations to enter into the top universities because they are so important to the culture there. Basically, you know, every prime minister, every senior business executive, et cetera, goes to sort of, you know, Tokyo University or to Seoul National in Korea. But what that means is, and he talked about it, is that they just get completely burnt out by that cram school system where they're studying until midnight every day. And so once they do get into college, they, they feel like they've made it. They can, they, it's basically impossible to fail out. And so people just coast through and then get great jobs afterwards, but they are not innovators and they are just kind of bureaucrats and cogs in a wheel. So I think sure for rote memorization and pure math, I think that the, um, Asian system certainly gets people to a to a higher level, but I I think having 
children studying until midnight is not the the way I think our education system should go. But there is a softer skill in there that you mentioned, which is hard work. And unfortunately, it seems like in this country, in K through 12, we're going the opposite direction, where I now know of several high schools that don't give homework. And if you're not in, if you're not working, right, and you're in school, but you're not, I'm not talking about 10 year olds, I'm talking about 16 year olds, 17 year olds, and you're not getting work to do for at least eight hours a day, then how are you, I'm including the time you're in school, I mean, of course, then um, how are you developing a work ethic, right? Um, And of course, there's other ways and there's always going to be the motivated individuals who do all the extracurricular activities and study on their own and their parents are sending them to, you know, additional schooling and classes on their own. But I'm talking about for your average student, your average student needs to have a work ethic taught to them. Because a work ethic is not something that everyone just has naturally. And I think it sounds like from, from the book uh, that they do a very good job at teaching people to have a work ethic in Japan. And I think we could do a better job in our K-12 through system. And I think we're actually going in the opposite direction of teaching people to have a work ethic in the United States. But then again, we're a very productive com- country. If you look at statistics, our workers are some of the most productive in the world. So maybe everything I'm saying is BS. Well, look, I, I again, I already said this, but the knock on Asian education typically is that it's non-innovative. But if you look at Japan as a country, um, it, it's obviously an innovative nation. So, you know, these this cramming for tests through midnight and this weird coasting that happens after you get to like Tokyo, some K starting university or whatever it's called, it doesn't seem to be holding back the innovation of the country and the people. I mean, like I'm on the Wikipedia page for a list of Japanese inventions and discoveries, and it's like ridiculously long. You you can make that comment about China today in, in 2019, but I don't think you could make that comment about Japan. But I think we have to balance this conversation with mental health. And in the U.S. right now, in the college system, we're having a mental health crisis. And so causing people to cram to too large of a degree can have some very serious backlash consequences that nobody would want. Um, so I, I think there is a balance. And he actually talks about that in, in the book as well. He mentions about people having mental health issues as a result of the cramming. So I, you, know, you don't want to go too far. So maybe we're too lax and they're too extreme and the right way is somewhere in the middle. Japan has one of the highest uh, suicide rates in the world, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, the United States has gone up quite a bit recently in that regard. But, um, it, I, I, you know, they also have a great deal less crime and all sorts of stuff like that. So, I don't know. On balance, I, I think I'd rather have a Japanese system. A little bit of live research. Uh, so, in terms of suicide rates, I don't know how we, we somehow we got here during this podcast uh, but anyway, the United States is number 34 in the world and Japan is number 30. Um, so very close, actually very similar on that. But again, I think forcing students, this is my opinion as an educator, forcing students to cram too much can have negative mental health consequences. So while I do think we need to teach work ethic, like I said before, we need to be careful and balance that with not being excessive. So what does that actually mean tangibly? Is it like, uh, I mean, you're a, CS professor. So I I could understand projects being kind of a way to encourage diligent work, but not really cramming. But are there other ways that you see 
that we could change our system that would still encourage work ethic without requiring cramming? Yeah. So collaborative projects, I think, are huge because then you actually get the pressure of the peer instead of the pressure of the instructor, right? So that's something I've started to incorporate in my classes more and more is having collaborative projects as a requirement of the course, not just even some of my classes I used to do, you have an option. You can work alone or you can work with a partner if you want to, to try to stop people from feeling who are socially shy from feeling uncomfortable in the class. But what I found the last couple of years is actually um, encouraging that collaboration to the point of forcing it. So giving somebody a partner, here's your partner, it's a randomly chosen partner can actually help people develop a work ethic because they feel a responsibility to the partner to do well um, because they don't want the partner to do badly. They want both of them to do well. Now, I think that's okay with adults. Remember, I'm teaching people who are 18 and above. I only really teach upper level classes, so I don't even teach 18-year-olds. So that's I think that's okay with adults. I think when we're dealing with K through 12, I'm not an expert in that. Um, I think a certain amount of rote memorization has to happen at some point Because I'm getting, and all of us in in higher ed are getting students coming in first year who don't know an average formula, uh, don't have basic math skills. And then you wonder, how how are high schools giving diplomas without basic math skills? So I I think the K through 12 system is inherently different than the university system and has to have more of that rote memorization. I'm just saying I wouldn't want to see it be excessive given the mental health crisis we're also having in this country. But there has to be some of it. I just Are don't we think- having a mental health crisis amongst college students in the United States? And is that caused by insufficient preparation? Yeah, so we absolutely are having a mental health crisis in the United States amongst college students. The number of students that are seeking counseling across all colleges across the country is way up over the last few years. People have attributed it to many different things. Um, some of it people believe is cultural. Uh, we're obviously living in a time of great political and media turmoil, and those messages being blared all the time is probably not healthy for our young people. They're not seeing a lot of uh, positivity in the media, and I think that's difficult. I think another thing is technological changes that have happened over the past two decades, especially the smartphone revolution. Um, We know that that's lowered people's attention spans. We know that's made it harder for people to study. Um, We know that it's made it... um, difficult for some people socially because they're able to recede into the smartphone instead of having those human interactions that previous generations had more frequently. And so for all of those reasons, those, that social cost of the technology, um, the crisis in the media in many ways, uh, and also, th- yes, education has been changing too and maybe not adapting fast enough to technological changes, uh, we are seeing a real mental health crisis, something we talk about all the time in education. Wow. Yeah, I'm surprised that you're not aware of it because it's it's a pretty no, big thing. I, to an outsider, you know, I wasn't really sure if the mental health crisis that was happening that is happening in, in colleges across the America. I don't know if that was because they're insufficiently prepared, because as you pointed out, um, because of a cultural difference, maybe people are more willing to seek out counseling, or maybe you know it's that thing that you hear about all the time: people just getting triggered, you know. Well, I think we have to do more. I think uh, it's really sad that we're letting our young people be so um, struggle so much without having adequate safeguards in place. And oftentimes, colleges are even struggling to keep up with the counseling demand. They're, we're hiring counselors as much as we can, as much as budgets allow. But often, counseling. Uh, luckily, we have a great counseling department at the school I work at. But I know a lot of colleges are struggling to even keep. Uh, 
enough counselors on staff to to meet the demand. Yeah, I would be curious to know, uh, and I imagine it's kind of impossible, but how much of it is a change in cultural norms where it's just more acceptable for people to reach out for help in a way that, you know, I don't know, our parents' generation just certainly wouldn't have, and how much of it is uh, actually, you know, people struggling more than they were before. I truly think it's cultural, it's technological, um, and then it's also media-driven. I think there's multiple different facets to it. I don't think there's just one thing we can say, oh, it's a smartphone, or, or oh, it's the media, oh, it's culture. I think that it's a perfect storm of, of multiple issues in society coming together on people when they're at a really vulnerable age. You know, When you're entering college at 18, um, you're technically legally an adult. But in many ways, uh, you're still not really ready for independence. And college is about that transition from somebody telling you what to do all the time and now suddenly having all this freedom and needing to make the right decisions on your own. And that is the number one thing that, that first-year students struggle with is time management and being able to um, decide for themselves, I need to do work now or I need to go to class now. Uh, and that's always been true. There's always been students struggling with that. For some reason, they're struggling more than ever. And I think it's for those multifaceted reasons I mentioned before. So I don't live in Japan, but as you guys probably have, I've read a couple of articles about how Japan has some pretty serious problems. And I think, Kopech, I think you touched upon this a little bit earlier when you said that uh, Japan has been suffering from like a the deflationary stagnation or something like that. Have you guys come across those articles where you hear about Japanese people receding from society, not having sex, uh, just kind of that society moving backwards? I think it contrasts a little bit with people's reports after having visited there. I mean, people talk about how Japan had a lost decade or something like that. But when you go to Japan, it just feels so far advanced that it it contrasts strongly with those uh, claims. What do you guys think about those things? So I mentioned before that I took a Japanese culture class in college. And even then they were talking about the otaku culture, which is sort of the um, the pale boy who just reads um, manga and doesn't talk to anyone and, you know, is entirely still lives in their parents, you know, apartment, that kind of that kind of thing. Um, and it's definitely a real thing in Japan. And they, the government is actually like actively trying to get people to date and things like that. Like the the birth rate is very low, so it is, and it is you know an, an aging country, and that's a that's a big part of the the fears for the future. But beyond that, the lost decade, which they've actually called you know the the lost score or whatever too, because because ultimately you know, it was the nineties and the and then the um the two thousands were also quite uh you know, stagnant, there was a significant deflation in the economy. And so they ended up going from like a 5 trillion yen economy to like a 4 trillion yen economy over that period. And so it is, it's, it's a huge change, but there's still a lot of wealth there and there's still a lot of, you know, innovation, technology, et cetera. So I, I, I don't know that much about the details of the, the sort of economic problems in Japan, but um, yeah, I, I, I've spent a week there. It certainly is a, you know, Tokyo is an incredible city with a lot of, um, you know, feels like the most global city in the world in a lot of ways, aside from, from language, I guess that, you know, in, in Hong Kong, you'll, you'll hear more foreign languages relative to Tokyo, but you know, Tokyo feels like it's the most advanced. 
Yeah. So we have to keep the context of the book alive, right? It was 1986 that he's writing this. Japan is on the top of the world. It's grown so much so quickly, kind of like China today, that it's a threat to the US's dominance of the global economy. And then they th- he's forward looking and thinking, well, this is going to keep going on, right? And we're just going to keep uh, destroying the US and trade. Well, they do continue to beat us in trade in terms of the trade imbalance. But then suddenly everything turned around, like David said, in the 1990s. And they went from growing much faster than the US economy to actually growing more slowly than the US economy throughout the 1990s and the early 00s. Uh, and then to touch back on what we were talking about, about the people in Japanese society who recede, I watched actually a French English language documentary about this. I, I think they're called the Hikikomori. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, and it's a phenomenon in Japan right now where people are just becoming loners and staying at home and not leaving their basically their house. Uh, and there's, according to the documentary, there's multiple different reasons for this, but a big part of it is cultural. And now there is a cultural movement there actually to accept the Hikikomori instead of criticizing them and say, maybe it's okay that they're becoming loners and being on their own and withdrawing from society. But then there's a lot of people who disagree with that and say, um, you know, that of course this is, this is bad for people to not have social interaction. uh, But the one point that the French documentary made that I thought was interesting is that we actually have that everywhere. I mean, maybe they have a name for it in Japan, but we have that in the U S we call them shut-ins, right? Or hoarders, people who stay at home, just accumulate stuff. We maybe just don't, talk about it as much, but we, we certainly have programs about it, but it's, it's a global phenomenon. And I think that it is a result of technology to, to a large degree. I think, it, I think it's a cause of it. People feel alienated by society. Um, and now they have a way of staying at home because of Amazon, because of smartphones that they didn't have before. Okay. I, I, I just, what you said was really well said. <laughs> maybe you're gonna have to cut that from the podcast but i think that was just an excellent point and we certainly have that in the united states i agree with you completely definitely see and as you said technology definitely seems to be a big part of it people are just receiving into their homes and playing video games instead of getting a job competing in markets getting a girlfriend and so on i, I know people in my own life like that Absolutely. And we deal actually to bring it back to college again, sorry to talk so much about my job, but we have a problem in college with not just mental health, but also video game addiction, another kind of mental health issue really, uh, which is becoming more and more prominent. And these are students, young people who can't, and older people too, who can't stop playing video games. And of course that didn't exist 20 years ago, right? There were video games, but they weren't the type that were so immersive and so enticing that so many people would be like, oh, I really don't want to stop, right? Um, So I think technology is creating a lot of problems in both Japanese and American society that were maybe a little bit unexpected. Everyone thought the world's just going to get better with these tech improvements, and it has as a whole, but there's been some parts of society that it's not even that they got left behind. They got the technology, it's that the technology ended up being more negative than people expected for certain kinds of people who are predisposed to specific mental health issues. When I was in China, if I played too much uh, Dota, which is some sort of computer video game, a, a mandated by law pop-up would appear in the top right corner that would say something like, you've been playing for over four hours, like you need to get off and stuff like that. There were some... And, uh, China for many years didn't even allow 
consoles like the PlayStation or Nintendo, which are Japanese made, by the way, um, to be in their country. It was illegal. So China, for whatever it's worth, has some concept of the harm that these uh, the technology can do to its people. Okay, kind of fun question to end here. Now, this book is written at the height of Sony's influence around the world when it is one of the top electronics brands and everyone aspires to be the Sony of their industry. But today, what do the two of you have that are Sony products? Uh, do you own any Sony products today? Do, do they still have the brand that they had back then? Yeah, I don't think I have a single Sony product at this point. Maybe some headphones somewhere. Um, but I, I talked about it earlier, I guess. I did own a lot of Sony products, and I had Sony TVs before, but my TVs are Samsung now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the things that we don't think are Sony products are full of Sony products, subcomponents, semiconductors, all the weird stuff that I'm sure they make that go into my Apple computer or my Google Pixel phone. I'm listening to this on Sony headphones, and I have a Sony stereo that I got for free, to be fair, right before we, we started. So I have a couple Sony products, but I really don't think that they have the cachet that they had when, when we were growing up. Okay, who do you recommend this book for? Who should read it? I feel like every American business ex- executive needs to read this book. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, and you guys probably disagree with me, which is a good thing because we can have another semi-heated argument. A lot of the ways that we do business in the United States is inferior to the way that we do business in Japan. And I suspect that if we didn't have import tariffs on cars, we wouldn't be making them at all in the United States. But, you know, it'd all be made in China or Japan, possibly even by Japanese companies exclusively. I I think they just like get it done better. And therefore, you know, we should all read these books, uh, this book and learn as much as we can and be more like Japan, frankly. Yeah, I learned a lot about um, Japan in this book, and I'd actually I studied Japanese a little bit as a as a kid, and I actually took a Japanese culture class in college. But I think I learned more from reading this book than from either of those things. So I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in the history of Sony, anyone who's interested in post war Japan, um, and yeah, any business executive, frankly, I don't think you need to be an American. Anyone who wants to innovate, people who want to like create the next iPhone for sure need to read this book because it shows how they just continuously improved and innovated over a really long period and how things were uncertain. They didn't even have the tape that was necessary. I can't even imagine that. It was so fantastic to me. They're they're making cassette tape and they just like buy paper locally and like cover it with glue. And next thing you know, they figured out how to make noise come out of that or sound. So fantastic. Uh, it really kind of renewed my, my faith in uh, human beings' ability to create new and amazing things. I also really enjoyed this book. We had a Japanese exchange teacher when I was in elementary school. And since that time, I've always been interested in Japan and its culture and its people. And I've read several books about Japanese business before this, but this was so much more than just a business book. This was about Japanese history. This was about Japanese culture. This was about the Japanese people. Um, And so I really enjoyed it for its multidisciplinary approach to telling the story. And I thought it was really great. And I'd recommend it to just about anybody who's interested in business or Japan. 
I think we should keep in mind that the different culture added a lot. And just if we do hear about, um, you know, founder stories from other countries, that might be a, a good indicator that it could give us a little bit more than the average book that we're reading. Absolutely. So talking about books, our next book, Hackers and Painters by Paul Graham. Why do we choose this book for our next book? Because he's from another country. <laughs> uh, why do we choose this book? He's pretty interesting on Twitter. He's got, I've read some of his essays online. I forget what his website is, but a, a lot of them are excellent. He's got some amazing insights on how to start a business, how to find an idea that works for a good startup and stuff like that. Yeah, I really enjoy Paul Graham on Twitter. I've read a number of his essays beforehand and I just kind of, uh, I think I heard about the book on maybe on Twitter or on a podcast or something. And I think maybe I had read a couple of these essays beforehand, but um, I'm maybe halfway through it and I've really enjoyed it so far. I think he just has a really interesting way that he looks at the world. And um, I think it'll inspire a, an interesting discussion among us. I know uh, Molson likes to to poke fun at Paul from time to time. So I think it'll, it'll spark a good chat. He's right a lot of the time, but I find it very off-putting. Probably how most people view me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I too follow him on Twitter and have read a bunch of his essays, so I'm really looking forward to our episode next month where we go over Hackers and Painters by Paul Graham. Okay, how can our listeners get in touch with the two of you, and is there anything that you want to plug this month? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at David G. Short. So you can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Molson underscore heart, like my name. I guess you can check me out on CNBC uh, on YouTube. I think the name of the video is called Little Tech Speaks Out. Put in Little Tech Speaks Out Amazon. And it's kind of interesting because you can take a look at my business, how it works, see how the premises look. It's a little bit over the top and ridiculous because they had they filmed us doing some things that we wouldn't do under the normal course of business. A lot of like, hey, can you can you throw this box over there? It'll look cool for camera. But yeah, you can check that out. It's kind of fascinating. <laughs> you look really frustrated when you're throwing the box. I was so sure that they had told you to do that. <laughs> yeah, they did. It was ridiculous. We do throw boxes in the warehouse from time to time, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts on how that went. It was pretty interesting. Okay, and I'm at Dave Kopeck on Twitter. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. If you like programming, you can check out my book, Class Computer Science Problems in Python. just came out in Portuguese. So if you're in Brazil or Portugal, check out the book. Okay, we will see you next month. Don't forget to like us on your podcast player of choice. And we really appreciate getting feedback from you. So reach out to us on Twitter and we will get back to you. Have a great month.